Welcome to the Overdrive Outdoors podcast. Your source for coyote hunting, fishing, and more. We're calling West Texas, and we're filming, and we called 36 coyotes in one night. Two years ago, three years ago, I had in one morning six bucks that were three and a half and older within 50 yards of my stand. Six different bucks one morning. It was in October. Went made my first coyote stand, me and my cousin. And uh, very first freaking stand, guys, we called up seven coyotes. <laughs> seven coyotes. Florida itself is a fisherman's paradise. We stick out in the middle of the water, man. There's water everywhere. Let's kick it in the overdrive. This podcast brought to you by Predator Hunter Outdoors. Locally owned and operated out of Attica, Michigan, Predator Hunter Outdoors will keep you hunting when the sun goes down. Predator Hunter Outdoors has something for every budget and experience level, including lights, night vision, and thermal, as well as a full line of tripods, mounts, and predator calls. Look them up on Facebook and Instagram at Predator Hunter Outdoors, or visit their webpage at www.predatorhunteroutdoors.com. Enter the promo code LIGHT for 20% off light products, and TRIPOD for 10% off tripods and mounts. With today's technology, hunters in the field have more tools than ever to maximize their outdoor experiences. One of those tools is a Grand Rapids, Michigan-based HuntWise app. The HuntWise Pro app is loaded with features including property lines, landowner data, windcast, huntcast, over 250 map layers including 3D maps, a localized rut indicator, as well as discounts of 20% off various name brand products. Step up to the Elite membership and you will get all of that plus HuntCast 2.0 with customizable alerts, Whitetail 365 which gives you season dates and local rut times as well as the best time to plant your food plots, a 15 day hunt forecast and 40-50% to 50% discount on name brand products. Enter code OVERDRIVE for 20% off your membership to HuntWise. Hello everybody, this is Kevin Rott with the Overdrive Outdoors podcast and today we have special guest Mr. Fred Eichler. How are you doing today Fred? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I think we're getting some of your weather out here. Right now it's snowing pretty good and we got like 23 mile per hour wind. Holy smokes. Yeah, you're getting some rough weather. I, I <laughs> right. live at 7,000 feet so we get a little snow up here and a little wind sometimes as well. Now you're in Colorado, correct? That's correct, sir. I'm in southern Colorado, close to New Mexico. Okay, great. So yeah, you're used to this type of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we get it quite a bit. How's the uh, winter been for you out there so far this year? You know, it's actually been pretty mild. Uh, we, you know, we had some cold weather, like it was uh, six degrees this morning, I think it was. Um, so, you know, we've had some colder weather, not a ton of snow, uh, but the cold weather has been great for the predators, uh, you know, not only calling them in, uh, but also for some baits. Uh, we went out the other night, shot three over baits. Um, which was pretty fun, all on video, just having a big time. Nice. So I wanted to have you on here. I've been doing a, a series of podcasts with trying to get some of the guys on there from when I first got into predator hunting around 2000. Um, used to watch all the shows on TV and YouTube when I could, whatever. Um, and yours was one of the ones that I really enjoyed. And I enjoyed, well, thank you. I enjoyed it for several reasons. One was obviously the hunting. You did a lot of different locations. You're doing a lot of predators, but also because of the education factor that you put into it. I mean, I remember one specifically where you showed how to skin a badger, um, just all sorts of stuff like that, that you had on your show that not only was it entertaining, 
got to see the hunting and all that, but you had an educational aspect to it. Um, so that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here. Um, let's talk a little bit about your history. Uh, are you originally from Colorado? No, sir. Actually, I grew up down south and uh, I grew up trapping, you know, lived out in the country, you know, had a well, you know, that type of stuff, you know, shot deer in the backyard, but uh, grew up trapping, you know, really my passion for predators came about from trapping. I, I think you can learn more about predators trapping than you can almost anything else because, you know, you learn where the animals go, uh, what, you know, how important scent is, um, not only your scent, but also using scents, you know, attractants and things like that. Because I always say, you know, when you're trapping, you're trying to get an animal to put its foot in one square inch versus the whole rest of the world. Right. And, and that takes some talent. I mean, that takes a little bit of doing to, to be able to do that. So early on uh, in my teens and my sister who you met earlier, she's got some crazy stories about me trapping raccoons when, you know, I was like 10, 12 years old. Um, but we, uh, you know, I would trap all up and down the creeks and, and stuff like that. So then it just kind of it kind of progressed. I, I moved to Colorado. Uh, I think I was 20 years old, 21, uh, to manage an archery shop and just started trapping everything then. You know, it was badgers and pine martens and, you know, coyotes and beavers and, you know, you name it, a little bit of everything, you know, bobcats. And not only did I learn a lot, but that's when I really started getting into the calling was, was to increase my fur take. And back then in the, in the 80s, furs were worth a lot of money. So I was paying rent and a Jeep payment, you know, with furs. Right. And, uh, you know, I've still not too long. I was making pretty dang good money. It's down quite a bit the last two years here. Uh, you know, but heck we're still getting, you know, I was getting what two fifty for a Bobcat two years ago. So, you know, still not terrible, but you know, it's a lot of, I, I, I just, I made up with it still. I love it. So is that something that you picked up from your family? Did your family, instill that in you or is it something you picked up on your own uh my dad was an avid hunter uh but he was not a trapper so uh the one of the, one of our buddies was an avid trapper he was a trapper from canada so i learned a lot from him at an early age and then i hooked up with some government trappers here in colorado and they taught me a lot you know and then you know i think like anything if especially if you get that super experienced guy teaching you and then you take what you've learned and try and learn some more um you know that's a huge benefit also a buddy of mine Bly that lives in northern Colorado he was a great trapper um, we would trap pine martens together you know again in the late 80s and early 90s so you know it was interesting to watch that progress from you know I want to trap but I also want to increase my fur take so when I wasn't trapping I was calling you know how do I get how do I get more predators? How do I get more fox and more badgers, more coyotes, more bobcats? Well, you know, the mouth calls were the big thing back then. So you know, I was running mouth calls and then it was tape players next, which were a pain. You know, the batters are always dying. You're lugging a tape player and the tape would make crazy noises. And you had wires going from the player to your speakers, you know, and then when the e-calls came out, that was huge. Uh, the electronic calls just blew me away. Um, and, and really took over the market. But what was interesting is there was a huge learning curve to those. You know, a lot of people like myself thought, oh, let's just crank up the volume as high as we can. Because if they can hear us close, they'll hear us even further if we crank the volume up louder. And it was interesting to see the difference. Instantly, I saw a lot of advantages in the e-calls because the animals were focused on the call and not your position, which is what they are when you're, when you're blowing a mouth call. So kind of like the tape players, that was 
a huge advantage because you could put the call out in front of you and you know get a broadside shot you could position the predators a little better um the problem was and a lot you know what a lot of people learned is you kind of get what you pay for like anything there was really cheap calls on the market and there was some really expensive good calls on the market and that's where i learned that speaker quality having a myriad of sounds at your fingertips was hugely important because Animals get educated, especially coyotes, wolves, super, super quickly. So, you know, by switching up calls and going to different sounds, you know, I found that was huge. And then I learned to start playing the sounds lower and to play sounds that other people weren't playing because, you know, coyotes were getting so educated. I'm sorry I'm running on there, but I get excited. But so, yeah, it was, you know, there was a lot of advantages. And I guess I would say I took that so far as to work with Western Rivers on designing a signature call that I literally went out and re-recorded, we custom recorded sounds for. My goats, my chickens, my guinea fowl, you know, rabbits, dogs, you name it, you know what I mean? We recorded coyotes, we, you know, all kinds of different sounds because no matter what call you have, there's a point where most of the coyotes have heard that sound. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, not only did I wanna have, you know, one that I had recorded a bunch of sounds for, but it was also just as important to just get some new sounds out there. Mm -hmm. So when you, um, you talked about, you know, working with the government trappers on the trapping, but you said your dad didn't do any calling. So how did you learn about calling? Did you end up having a mentor of some sort or was it all trial and error? No, good question. And Bly, one of my buddies, uh, you know, again, when I was 21, uh, he was a predator caller and, you know, we got mouth calls and we would go out and I had a lot of really good guys teach me some really cool stuff. Uh, but I would say I was learning a lot of my own as well. You know, I would take that and go, okay, yep, that work, that seems to look, work really good on a coyote. Now let's go try and call a badger and do, you know, what, what do I have to sound like, or what do I have to, how do I need to blow this mouth call or a read call, you know, diaphragm calls were coming out then as well. And it was like, man, you know, how much can I increase, you know, my number of predators I can call in by varying the sounds that I'm making, mm -hmm. whether that was a mouth call or a diaphragm, whether it was a squalling raccoon or, you know, whether I was doing some, you know, coyote vocalizations, how can I make that sound even better? So, so yeah, I was lucky to have some guys teach me. And then like a lot of things, um, you kind of customize it to your style. And, and mine was, you know, I wanted numbers. I, I wanted to shoot a lot. And again, understand I was paying bills with, with hides. So with furs. So I wasn't about, Oh man, I'm going to go out and hope to get a coyote. Or if two coyotes come in, maybe I'll get one. I was like, I would know my stands ahead of time. You know, like I'm going to go here, here, here. I would research it. I would take a lot of things into consideration. I wanted them close. So if multiple dogs came in, I could get more than one. You know, it was a, how do I pay for gas? You know what I mean? How am I going to make this worthwhile? Um, so it was really uh, uh, about the number of furs and, and really back then as much as fun because I did enjoy it. Like anybody that enjoys something they're doing. Uh, but it was a lot of it, to be honest, was motivated by let's get some more furs in the fur shed. So we get a bigger fur check this month. Sure. Um, now you said you started that around your teenage years, right? Yes, sir. So how old are you? I'm 50. I had to think about that for a second. I'm 55. I'm oh, okay. 55. Gotcha. So you started 
getting all in this adventure at well, in what year you'd say? Oh About, gosh, almost forty years ago. Late, you know, eighties in the eighties. Okay. Um, when you started originally, you said you were down south originally, right? Yes, yeah, sir. But I, I was in Colorado from twenty on. Oh, okay. So when you started, where, where were you at when you were down south? Uh, I was in Gainesville, so outside of Gainesville, actually. So northern Florida, not far from Georgia. Really? Okay. Yes, so sir. That's quite a switch between going from there to Colorado. In some ways, yes. Uh, I still go back to Florida and call in, you know, heck, my last trip last year, I was calling in, I called in skunk, I called in possum, I called in coyote, bobcat. I was calling in a bunch of different predators. So there's a lot of predators down south as well. But, you know, one thing about the country, no matter where I've called predators from Canada to Florida or from California, you know what I mean, over to Pennsylvania, there's some rules that that just apply. Um, you're definitely hunting in different conditions. Uh, there's different things to take into consideration. But say it's still a coyote, if you will. You know what I mean? And that's the majority. I've called in a myriad of stuff. And we can talk about that because that's what's fun to me too. But um, there's still a lot of the same rules apply. The, the wind direction, the sun at your back, you know, setting up to where you're going to have time for a shot. Now, that may be different whether you're in Texas or Colorado, Wyoming, Nebraska versus Alabama, Georgia, Iowa, you know what I mean? Things like that. And the same with Canada, you know. So I've been very fortunate. I've, I've taken that. I guess it's an addiction or a passion uh, to kind of extremes on, on trying to call in and learn about a lot of different predators, if, if you will. Sure. So when you first started to now, tell us about your progression of the equipment that you use when you're calling. Um, I'm yeah, assuming you started mainly in the daylight, like most of us, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It was, it was daytime calling and, you know, and it was mouth calls. And, and like I mentioned, the tape players, um, now it's full on crazy. And, and when I say crazy, there's so much, there, there's so many things you could take advantage of now. I mean, it's, right. it's probably good. I didn't have some of that when I was younger. Cause my gosh, I'd have, I'd have really lost my mind, but you know, now I've got, I've got an ATN thermal scope. I've got, you know, an ATN night vision scope. I've got coyote lights, you know, I've got different color lights. Um, you know, I've got an electronic call. I've got sense. I've got decoys that I can use, you know what I mean? To help bring them in, you know, whereas sometimes a decoy is still as simple as a chicken feather on a string, you know what I mean? On a, on a stick out there, like Burnham brothers, you know, that those guys would, you know, kind of do, or, or as, you know, as sophisticated as an electronic call, you know, with batteries or one that's hooked up to my call that has batteries. So yeah, the equipment, you know, even to my rifles, my gosh, you know, I started out, you know, I didn't have hardly any money. So I had one single shot H and R it was an old Harrington and Richardson, you know, like single shot two twenty three, okay. And that was my coyote rifle, man. But I got good at, man, I could eject that thing, throw another round in and shoot it like a bolt, you know? And then it was like, okay, I got enough money in furs and started making enough money. It was like, okay, now I'm going to graduate to a bolt. Now, man, I would tell you, I still use a bolt and, you know, depending on the situation and legality in some states, but an AR is probably my go-to. But what's interesting is back in my dad's day, you know, those, the, the ARs that, you know, the old Colts and stuff, they weren't accurate at all. You know, people made fun of the ARs. They, you, you couldn't hit a, you know, you couldn't keep a tight group with an AR. Now, I'm running around with a rock river arms is keeping sub MOA groups and I can rattle them out fast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I'm shooting, 
I wouldn't hesitate to take a 500, 600 yard shot. So it's really neat. Uh, the progression of the equipment and, you know, people now have so many, so many advantages when they go out. So when you first started, do you hand load or were you shooting factory ammo? Back in the day, I was hand loading everything, but you know, you bring up a great, great point there, Kevin, you know, back in the day when I was hand loading, you kind of had to, if you wanted something really accurate for a specific rifle. And again, we're going back 35 years, you know, you understand now, if a guy reloads, he's either a hardcore competitive shooter or he just enjoys it because, you know, you know, look at Hornady and I'll use them for example, because, you know, those guys hunt with me and, you know, I work with them and, and, you know, I've hunted with those guys. You can have a myriad of different, you know, bullet weights, different bullet types, you know, you can use a Max, you can use, you know, you know, FMJ, depending on what you want to do, you can use a lead, you know, you know, a hollow point, you can use a man, boat tail, what do you want? And do you want it in a 35 grain in a 223? Or do you want it in a, you know, 75 or 80 grain? Right. You know, the, the amount of choices that a shooter or especially a predator hunter, since that's what we're talking about, that a predator hunter has now today is unbelievable. And okay. so I choose um, I don't reload. One, it takes a lot of time. Two, I'm sure you're aware, it's difficult to get what you need today. Right. You know, try and buy some primers. Try and buy some powder. <laughs> so a lot of times it's easier to actually find the, you know, the actual ammunition. But there's also ammunition now, unlike back in the day when I started, that's being made specifically for predators. So right. like I shoot a horny B-Max bullet that's one of the few bullets that was literally designed for predators. Uh, you know, it, it, that super performance round, I'm shooting 3,465 feet per second. I'm shooting either, I either go with the 53 grain or the 55 grain. You know, I'm shooting it out of a one and eight twist on, on a rock river. I'm shooting, you know, usually sub MOA groups with that thing, you know, out to 300 yards and it's hitting a coyote. It's expanding super fast. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I, you know, a fur missile is what it is. I mean, but it hits and just boom, but it doesn't expand. So I very rarely have an exit. I very rarely have a pelt that I have to sew up. You know, back in the day when I was shooting stuff, I was always, you know, I would spend more time, you know, after flesh and sewing a hide up, you know, so it was more valuable and you have it patched up. So there's, there's a lot of options for people now um, with equipment, you know, whether it's a bolt gun an AR and, you know, Look, let's look at scopes. My gosh, Kevin, you know, look at, look at the CDSs. you got a custom dial systems now. Oh, I think of all the bobcats or coyotes I could have shot if I would have been able to just go, okay, it's 384 and dial it and hold dead on, right. you know, as opposed to the old, you know, cheap scopes I was running, you know, with no, no adjustment, you know, option. Yeah. So from almost every facet you know, I would tie sticks together sometimes to have a bipod, you know, or you'd try and find a tree you could lean against, or like a lot of the older guys, you know, you would shoot off your knee. Now I'm hauling a, a tripod with, you know, you know, and I like the death grip. There's a bunch of great ones out there, but I literally tighten my gun in a vice could swivel it left and right up and down. And it's like shooting off a bench. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, my son shot an elk this morning and you know, 470, 476 yards and smoked it. And I'm like, you couldn't have done that back in the day, you know, you know, and, you know, and, you know, one shot, boom. And so 
Yeah, I, I'm sorry. It's a long-winded answer to your question, but yeah, there is there has been so many advancements in ammunition, scopes, firearms, calls, decoys. Now we have thermal vision, night vision, stuff I could have only dreamed about. Right. Um, so I'm tickled that I got to see this stuff. You know, you know, while I was I, while I'm still active enough to get out there and get after it hard. Yeah. So when you were back in the day when you were generating income from your fur sales, did you, obviously you just talked about having to do a lot of sewing, but did you have a preferred bullet that you used back then? Um, you know what? I was shooting a spear and I can't remember. I know I was shooting like the, I think it was the HMR 4060 or something powder. I was reloading. Um, it was a spear and it was a hundred, I think it was 110 grain bullet. Um, and I was running out of a 22, 250. And then I had another one. I was running out of an odd six um, because I was using my deer rifle sometimes <laughs> and loading down to a smaller bullet and, you know, and doing that. But my gosh, I'd have to go to some old notes to look at it because um, it's been a while. But now you've been pretty much in the 223 sticking with that 55 grain VMAX. I, I have, um, you know, I did some with a 22, 250 because I liked 22, 250. The problem with 22, 250 is I was having a lot of exits. Um, you know, it's great for dumping one, you know, you want, you want Kyle not to take a step, you know, you hit him with a, you know, 22, 250, you know what I mean? That's zipping, especially back then before they had some of the rounds that they have now for the 223. Um, but that was great coyote medicine, you know, and I played with them all. I've, I've played with some of the rim fires. I've played with the 17s and 17 rims, 17 center fire. Um, I thought the 204 was going to be, you know, the gift to predator hunting problem with the 204 is, you know, you get some wind. I was having drift. Um, I would have coyotes that would just take a hit and they'd run 7,500 yards. You know, they'd still drop graveyard dead, mm. but they'd run a little bit first. So it was a little bit more work. You know, it was like, okay, now we got to go find this guy. So to me, man, I've shot coyotes with everything from muzzleloaders, air rifles, recurve, compound, crossbow, unit, you know, a, a lot of, you know, shotguns, a lot of different weapons. But if I was to choose one, you know, if you're like, okay, you can coyote hunt, but you got to just choose one, you know, one caliber. Yeah. Bar none. I, I would go with the 223. Nice. So in terms of North America, what would you say is your favorite predator to hunt? Cause I mean, you've hunted pretty much everything, right? You're, you're going to laugh. Cause it's going to, it's, it, this is a silly answer, but it's kind of whatever I'm hunting at the time. Okay. It, does that make sense? Sure. Like it's about the hunt. Yeah. You know, if I'm hunting Fox, Fox is my favorite. If I'm hunting badgers, badgers, my favorite. So I'm, you know, I've been super lucky, like to give you an example here in Colorado, I'm spoiled with predator hunting because we've got red fox, gray fox, swift fox, coyote, badger, bobcat, raccoon. You know, we've, we've got a myriad of predators that I can call in and, and, and one small area, you know, and that's not counting some of the bigger, you know, I called in a mountain lion last year that was incredible, came right up to my electronic call. We got amazing video of it, 15 yards you know what I mean? My cameraman's freaking out a little bit because he's got a little <laughs> fuzzy thing on the end of his microphone there on the camera. Um, you know, black bears, call them black bears. So, you know, there's a lot of really good states for predators, but I'm going to say Colorado is Colorado's way up there because three species of fox, you know, the coyotes, the, you know, to be the badgers, the raccoons, you know, we've got all kinds of different stuff that, that we can call in. And I, and I love that. But in, in reference to North America, my favorite I like the weird stuff too. Um, 
Cotamundi, for example, you know, that's, you know, fun to hunt. Ringtail cat, you know, most people haven't even seen a ringtail cat. They're in North America. Yeah. Uh, calling it. Whereabouts in North America? Cotamundis are in South, uh, Southern. So we've got them, uh, Arizona has uh, got quite a few of them and there's a bunch in Mexico. So yeah, I've, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've seen them and videoed them in both Arizona and in Mexico. Okay. So they're, they look like a half monkey, half <laughs> raccoon. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and then ringtail cat is, is another one that's that's super unique. Um, again, for North America, you know, wolves. Um, for me, you know, a, a wolf is the was the epitome of you know calling in one of the smartest predators in North America. Um, and I've actually videoed you know calling in and shooting two different wolves. So that was really neat. Uh, one of them was almost ten years ago now. I don't, you know, it's been a while, but. Some of some of the neat things about North America is you can float around and, you know, when you call in a possum, for example, down south, it's like, oh, that's really unique. That's kind of cool. You know, I, you know, even I enjoy even skunks. You know, it's like, man, look at that. Called in a skunk. That's cool. You know, that's another predator. So, you know, alligators. I've called in alligators. You know what I mean? So, you know, that's another predator that a lot of people don't think of. So, um, you know, when you say North America, my favorite, I would say whatever I'm chasing at the time. Does that, you know, yeah. I, I, I love them all. Yeah. Um, going back to what you were just talking about wolves on, you know, the challenge of calling in wolves, would you, in your experience, do you think a mountain lion or a wolf is harder to call in? Good question. Um, I'm going to tell you, it depends on the circumstances and, and the area. Um, they both have and can have very large territories. Mm -hmm. So I call it calling blind. Uh, if, if you're set up and, and your goal is to call a mountain lion in, that's super, super difficult. Um, and, you know, unless you're willing to stay there 12 to 24 hours. <laughs> so, you know, they, they could be, you could be in good lion country and, and there may not be a lion, you know, within three miles of you um, just because they're either sitting on a kill or they're, you know, walking a wide range. And it's the same with wolves. I mean, you know, we followed a wolf pack one time just to, it was fun. I mean, we were in PC and we were trying to call wolves. I'm like, well, let's see if they bed down. You know, we were thinking maybe, you know, maybe if we follow them for a couple of miles in the snow, we'll find, oh my gosh, those wolves went like eight miles. So I'm like, you know, so I learned, I was like, okay, wow. You know, if I would have set up and called where I saw those wolf tracks, I'd have wasted my time because they were more than eight miles away. Wow. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, you know, those are some of my favorites, but I would say, yeah, the, the, it depends. It would be very tough for me to say, um, Kevin, that one was more difficult than the other because I've, I've called both in when it seemed easy and I've called both in when it seemed very, very difficult. Okay. Um, so, you know, so much of it, just like with your coyotes or your bobcats, you know, is the animal within earshot and, you know, are you playing a sound that's going to trigger you know, that animal to come in. So, you know, those are the two biggest variables. And, and we've all called when there wasn't an animal within earshot. And we've all called when we could see the animal and it just didn't, you didn't trip its trigger. And, and maybe you switched calls and didn't trip its trigger. Or maybe you went through a couple calls and did trip its trigger. So, you know, it's a, that's a great question. And I, I just couldn't say that, you know, oh, I 100% feel that a wolf is easier or a lion's easier. I think it depends on the situation um, and whether you're playing something. If they're in the area and if you're playing something, they're going to react to. With, 
in regards to let's say a mountain lion versus a bobcat do you see a lot of similarities in how they respond to calling uh yes they both come in very slow mm -hmm. um very methodical um most of your coyotes are going to run in um you know foxes are nervous and quick they're going to zip in usually um they may look hard for predatory birds or larger predators than them um but you know your foxes and things like that are a little more timid so i set up closer to the brush to make them feel comfortable whereas a coyote will run across a wide open expanse um because they're usually um unless you're in areas with wolves they're usually one of the larger predators um in you know the case of a bobcat or a lion very very similar um very rarely do they come running into the call um you know that will happen i've seen that mm -hmm. but it's not it's more the exception than the norm the norm is a bobcat will come slipping in it'll take a long time it's going to look the area over and it's going to stalk up on the call and it's going to stalk up using the terrain to its advantage yeah. because it doesn't want that predator to see it you know they I mean they they usually slip up and and stealth is how they get animals and mountain lions are the same i mean you know the video we got of that mountain lion last year you know it slipped up to within, oh, I don't know, five yards of the call, you know, in the grass. And we just saw all of a sudden it just appear easing toward the call in the grass. And my cameraman's catching it all. And then it made a sprint, like the last five yards, it all of a sudden went quick. And then it was like, wait a minute, you know, and you could see it like, well, but it didn't run off. I mean, it was, you know, that's an apex predator. And it kind of stood up like, all right, you guys got me. You know, that was good. <laughs> you know, and it could clearly see us. Right. Um, you know, and it actually bristled up a little bit on its back and then it just walked, but it was neat to watch that. But yes, I would say again, a long winded answer to your question, Kevin, um, bobcats and lions are very similar. All cats, um, are similar in how they react to a call. I've called in leopards in Africa, um, that I didn't see until they were at the call, literally like it was like, Holy cow, how did it get there? I'm watching it leaving. I don't <laughs> understand. You know, I was actually calling jackals one time and and a, a leopard slipped in and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. So what other countries have you hunted? I know you've been to Africa, been to Canada, been to Mexico. What? Uh, yeah, what so Australia, uh, a dingo, ever since I saw that, that dingo ate my baby. You know, <laughs> right. you know I was like, I gotta get a dingo. So I really wanted to interact with uh, dingoes with both mouth calls and electronic calls. Uh, had a blast doing that. Um, you know, shot a, shot a beautiful dingo. It was pretty cool. Um, got to call some in, watch them interact with the call and, and learn some about dingoes, called in some of the, you know, wild cats that they have over there. Um, so that was really fun. Africa was neat because I wanted to hunt, um, you know, and learn a little bit about different predators. So I've been fortunate to have had and watched um, a lot of different predators come into a call, you know, jackals, um, leopards, um, you know, things like that. You know, I've shot a hyena, but it didn't come into a call, although I was trying to call a hyena. Um, but, you know, watching how animals react to a call, watching a pride of lions react to my call was pretty spooky. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, you know, yeah. So um, it's neat to watch different critters. And, and, and I guess I just, one of the fun things I've had is, is traveling even if it was just hopping the truck, you know, and, and, and man, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to throw a couple hundred dollars in there for gas money and I'm going to hunt a couple States, you know, and I'm going to hunt public land or I'm going to call some buddies and see if they've got some places, but it's fun to learn a little bit about, you know, man, let's call here. And, and you know, in time of years, you know, makes such a difference. It's like, you know, are you calling when they're starting to pair up? Well, then I'm using a lot more vocalizations, you know, am I calling when it's really cold? 
and I want to use, you know, coyotes come into a call for, you know, a few reasons. And, and, and really it's, it's either, it's either food, it's sex or it's curiosity. You know, that's, you know what I mean? You know, it could be a dominant thing too, where they're coming in to run something out of the territory, but you know, I kind of put that in the category of curiosity or, or aggression. So, you know, those are the three reasons, you know, a, a predator comes into a call, no matter what it is. So, you know, taking advantage of different times of year, knowing what sound to play different times of year, um, knowing that spring is going to be one of the tougher times, um, you know, unless you're trying to trigger that aggression or that curiosity, you know what I mean? Sound. Uh, that's one of the things I really enjoy is, okay, you know, January is very different from March and March is very different from May and May is very different from August, you know, and, and then you take that factor and go, the weather conditions you're having, the region, you know, that you're in is going to make a variable. The amount of pressure that they have is going to make a variable. And, you know, what species you're after is going to make a variable. So, you know, one of the things, Kevin, I, that I think gave me a little bit of an advantage, and I think a lot of guys at film have this advantage. When I was shooting predators, just shooting them to, to sell for me, mm-hmm. as soon as that animal gave me a good shot, I was going to take it. Because every second that you continue to watch that animal, that's another second that something could go wrong. They could figure out that something else is up. Another predator could show up. The wind could switch. They could spot you. There, there's, you know, a jillion things that could go wrong. So as soon as they were in, you know, what I was considering my, you know, 98%, I'm going to be able to take this animal range I was shooting. When I started videoing and trying to promote predator hunting, teach people about predator hunting, I would let animals whether it was bobcats, coyotes, fox, badgers, you know, whatever it was, get a lot closer to the call, get a lot closer to the decoy, because I wanted people to see those reactions. I wanted to see, you know, oh, they came over here because of this. And, you know, like you mentioned, Predator Nation, that was one of the fun things like, oh, on this set, we called in a bobcat and a coyote. And why did I shoot the coyote first? Well, you know, here's why. And, you know what I mean? You know, you could see the bobcat heard the noise and just laid down in the, you know, you know, in the grass. Or, you know, here's a here's a bobcat running in and a fox comes running in and the bobcat takes after the fox. And now I got nothing because, <laughs> right. you know, I was messing around video and, and I had two predators in range, but I was so enthralled at watching the bobcat ignore the call and take off after the fox that I didn't shoot one of them. So, <laughs> man, I could just talk. I'm sorry. But it's just, that's the kind of fun stuff to me is, is you learn anybody that says they know everything about predator hunting is a liar. They're just, they're, they're just lying or, you know, or they have an inflated sense of self. I still learn every time. And sometimes I learn that I should have listened to myself. You're like, <laughs> you knew better than to set up right here because that was a blind spot. And you, you, when you sat down, it didn't feel right. So, you know, sometimes, you know, a lot of that's just trust your own intuition, you know, and the other part is like people, some coyotes are more brazen than others. You know, some coyotes are more timid than others. You know, some coyotes are more, you know, you know, focused, more aggressive than there's just all, all these different variables that come into play that one one rule does not fit all. Right. <laughs> For sure. Um, tell me about calling in a bear because um, up here in Michigan, we've been black bear hunting and primarily you have either baiting or guys running with dogs. Um, I've been successful the last three seasons we've been out and we're hunting over bait, but I've always been intrigued about the potential of trying to call a bear. It's 
Awesome. I mean, you know, any apex predator meat, especially when you're on the ground, um, is 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 a neat. That's a neat experience. Um, with bears, in my experience, when you're calling, um, and Colorado, for example, you have to be careful. And, and you know, I tell guys check your game regulations, no matter where you're at, um, because a lot of a lot of states have goofy, goofy regulations, and you can get in a bind if you don't want to. That mountain lion that I called up, for example, I was using my Western Rivers call. I had a mountain lion tag in my pocket and part of the state of Colorado, you can use an electronic call to call in and kill a lion. The area that I was at in Colorado, you can only use a mouth call. Really? So it's weird that in the same state, you could have two totally different regulations when wow. it comes to calling. So I say that because black bears are the same. So in Colorado, you cannot use an electronic call for big games. So for black bears, for example, I can't use an electronic call to call in a black bear. Okay. I can, however, use a mouth call. So I go with a mouth call. So, you know, you know, I tell people, make sure you check your regulations because there's goofy laws like that. You know, a lot of people would have said, oh man, I saw the regulation says you can use electronic call. Had I shot that lion, I would have, you know, gotten a ticket for that. So instead we got some beautiful footage of it walking right up to the call end of it, unfortunately walking away, (laughs) even though I had a lion call in my, in my pocket. So um, on the black bears, in my experience, constant calling is the key. Bears lose interest very quickly. Uh, They're curious animals, but they can lose interest in something. You know what I mean? Relatively quickly. Once I get that interest going, I wail on a call. I want to keep it going. If that bear starts coming to me, I am going to keep wailing on the call. Um, I've seen guys like, oh, I'm going to play a little bit and then I'm going to stop. Man, I've interacted with a lot of black bears. Uh, you know, I've called a lot of black bears. I've called black bears in Colorado. I've called black bears in Canada. I've called black bears uh, in Alaska. I've called black bears in, in, in a lot of different areas, New Mexico. So I've, I've been fortunate to watch black bears interact with mouth calls and the sounds that are made. In my opinion, that constant squalling, you know, that constant squalling is, is a key. Um, you know, with if I can make a constant bleeding sound, almost like a fawn in distress, mm-hmm. you know, that's going to pique their interest because every black bear out there is eating a whitetail fawn. People have, they're just now starting to realize what a lot of trappers and a lot of people spend a ton of time outdoors realize that black bears are predating on a lot of whitetail fawns. Mm -hmm. They also predate on a ton of elk calves here in Colorado. Um, So, you know, trying to emulate, you know what I mean? A calf screaming, a whitetail, you know what I mean? You know, fawn squealing. If you've heard, you know, you know, fawns, you know, you can watch video even and watch fawns. You pick up a fawn and it's, you know, so I will try and emulate something with a little bigger lungs, you know, rabbits, when you hear them squeal, you know, they can let out one long one, but it's usually a shrill high one. But usually if they're getting attacked or hurt, it's a very fast, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, they have smaller lungs, whereas a whitetail fawn's got bigger lungs. It makes a different sound. So emulating that curiosity or emulating that, oh my gosh, I, you know, there's a fawn right there and it's hurt. I'm going to go eat it. By constantly making that sound, I find I have more luck. So the spring is a great time to call bears in. I've called bears in the fall as well. Um, sometimes I think, uh, and this is just conjecture, this is just guessing, um, that 
the bears come in because it almost sometimes sounds like a cub. Like I've, I've had to be very careful because I've called in sows with cubs. And I think that they maybe thought one of their cubs was getting hurt. They, you know, it's something triggered that motherly, oh my gosh, you know what I mean? I've got to save this. I don't know if it's my cub squalling like that or somebody else's cub. You know, it was just odd. You know, I wish I knew exactly what was going through them, but I think it just, something just snaps. So when you're calling bears, um, you do have to be careful because, you know, a, a lot of times sows will come in. Um, and it seems like you'll also have, you know, a good number of, of younger bears and some big boars, um, but it depends on, you know, the area. So I prefer when I'm calling black bears, I really like it when I can see the bear. Um, you know, if I can glass a bear half a mile away, or if I can see it, you know, down a logging road, you know, maybe eat grass or it's, you know, crossing it. And then I can start calling to kind of track its progression. I can base my sounds, uh, my cadence, my volume on what that bear is doing. You know what I mean? If it starts picking up the pace, you know what I mean? Cause I'm going a little shriller or I'm dying down a little bit. Then I'm like, Ooh, I'm, I'm doing the right thing. If it starts to lose interest, I'm going to switch it up a little bit, you know, a little faster, a little more, you know, uh, you know, I'll call it passion, but probably a little more of a, Hey man, I'm dying right now. Like you better hurry. This is this, you know, this is, this is full on screaming right here. So, you know, I would say do it. It's a blast. Um, it's a good idea to tandem hunt. Uh, I had a guy with a muzzleloader that literally shot his muzzleloader just to scare a bear off. He was so scared. Like, wow. you know, uh, we, we had a, a black bear. It was up on the side of a mountain and it was a client of mine. And I said, Dan, let's see if we can call it in. The bear was up there eating acorns and uh, he was sitting next to me. And thank goodness, because usually I have a client up in front of me, but I started, I started squalling and this bear threw his head up and it was like, oh, I'm coming to eat that. It's on. <laughs> this bear comes down the mountain and literally is just as fast as it can run coming right at us. And I'm like, okay, shoot. And he's like, what's he going to stop? And I'm like, <laughs> he ain't stopping. Like you better shoot. And this bear's coming. So he literally said he didn't even look through his sights. He was just scared when that bear hit 25 yards coming, he just cranked off around. And of course all the smoke billows out, neither of us could see. And I'm kind of cringing waiting for the bear to hit us, but he didn't touch that bear. But oh, wow. you know, I tell guys bear hunting is something uh, it's a good idea to tandem call. Cause you, you know, if you, if you have a nasty situation with the sound cubs, I don't let them get too close. I try and stand up, bluff them off pretty quick. Um, same thing with a, you know, a bigger bear that sneaks in behind you, you know, things like that. Cause I've shot bears at five yards, you know, with rifles, 10 yards, 15 yards, you know, so you can have some really exciting, um, you know, encounters, you know, with, with black bears, but I do suggest tandem calling. Um, or having your back to get something. <laughs> well, um, that what I was gonna ask is, have you seen will bears circle the call like try and catch your wind, or do you see them being more direct usually? Kind so of. Great, great question. Bears are an apex predator, so um, the bears that I've called in weren't used to really being called. So you know, most of the time they're they're coming at you. You know, so that's that's nice. And I, I found that with a lot of the larger apex predators. Um, you know, coyotes, because so many of them get educated to hunters so quickly um, that a lot of times they'll circle. Um, a lot of times a coyote will circle uh, if you're hunting like where there are other apex predators, like a wolf. You know, he may be coming in and going, oh, I don't really want to, I don't want to also be turned into the meal either. You know, so sometimes they'll circle stuff. You know, I've found where lions, for example, have killed coyotes before. So, you know, I think a lot of those, you know, smaller predators tend to do that. To, to check, you know, some of it's because of pressure and they've learned that, 
boy, am I smelling, you know, is there a person around here? Is there something dangerous or is that, is that a legit animal dying that I'm running into? Or is there something bigger that's killing that animal right. that may eat me? So, you know, I think that's also, you know what I mean? Kind of the process, like, you know, almost every predator has been run off of a kill or run off when it was killing something by a bigger predator. So, you know, and even, you know, birds of prey, gosh, you know, we've got video of a bobcat that was trying to come into a call and an owl, you know what I mean? Kept trying to get this bobcat, you know what I mean? And it was like, oh my gosh, you know, this bobcat's trying to come in as an owl's, you know, attacking the freaking bobcat or, you know, running at it and, you know, not running. That would be neat to watch an owl run, but it was, you know, swooping down at it. And, and we're literally getting video of it through the thermal scope. So, you know, I think a lot of that, the ones that circle are not the, the apex predators unless they're educated apex predator. Gotcha. Um, so how did you transition to the TV series, TV shows? I mean, it, was it your own idea? Someone asked you to do it? No, somebody asked me to do it. It's kind of like Easton bow hunting. I never went, oh, man, I, you know, I want to be on TV. I was running an outfitting business. Uh, I took some of the guys from Easton and they said, you know, hey, we're thinking about doing a TV show. You know, usually a lot of stuff with Easton Arrows. Would you consider being the host? And I was like, ah, I don't know. What do I have to do? So, you know, they were like, do your thing. Just go out and hunt. And I was like, awesome. Well, I had a guy that was in the industry come by one time and I had, oh, I don't know, 40 or 50 coyote hides on the wall drying. And, you know, and he was like, oh my gosh, you know, who got all these coyotes? I'm like, uh, you know, between trapping and calling them in, you know, I, um, I, I, you know, I sell furs. He's like, what? I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, how many do you call in? And I'm like, cool. You know, I don't know quite a few, you know, and calling this and this, and that's Fox and that's Badger. And, and, and he was like, man, you should do a predator show. So he actually talked to the guys at Sportsman's Channel and they actually came to me and said, would you do a show, a predator show for us? So it wasn't, I didn't approach them. Like a lot of people that have shows go to the channel and say, oh, I have an idea about a TV show and I'll pay you this much money. It wasn't like that for me. They paid me to do the TV show. So it was kind of a, it was a pretty awesome deal. Um, I was, shooting coyotes and bobcats and badgers and all kinds of other predators and trying to teach people, you know, how to do it. So it was, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun. So that's how it, that's how it came about. It was kind of pure luck just, you know, as an outfitter and a guide, I meet a lot of people in the hunting industry and, uh, when predator nation came out and right now, actually I'm doing a digital series of predator nation for MOTV. Mm -hmm. Um, matter of fact, we just rolled out, uh, four episodes. Uh, some of them were showing uh, coyote hunting, over bait and then we show calling in a bobcat and you know using some thermal scopes and the advantage of baiting on pressured coyotes if you want to you know there's so many different ways you know you're calling them you're trapping them you're baiting them you're you know so i'm bouncing around different baits but that's been a really fun deal too so yeah just just blind luck i wish i could say there was something that was you know magical about it's just guys started realizing that you know fred's shooting a lot of predators and maybe he could video it and it takes a lot of patience to video now, when you go out and do that, do you have a film crew that goes with you to do the filming then? I do. Uh, it's not a film crew. It's just usually one of my guides or, uh, you know, or a professional cameraman, um, you know, like, you know, they would, they would hire a professional cameraman or say, you need to hire one. Um, so instead of having a cameraman and trying to turn him into a hunter, I usually would go with one of my guides and turn him into a cameraman. You know, let's, let's learn how to do this. Let's learn how to do this um, because they were so much better at it. Right. You know, it's just, you know, they, they knew how I hunted, they knew how to hunt. Um, and a lot of times, like with a lot of the guys, you know, gosh, you know, Jake Krause, I've had blight chatter, I've a bunch of guys video, you know, you know, a lot of, a lot of my family will video, 
Um, you know, Tim is another great, you know, video on Jake, you know, I've had a bunch of really good guys that were videographers. And the nice thing is they were hunters. So we would bounce ideas off each other. What do you think? You know, you know, let's, let's try this or, you know, and they had, oh, good wood eyes. So, you know, we would, they would spot as many animals as I did, you know, like, oh, you know, hey, we got a bobcat on the left, you know, I'm like, oh, I didn't see that. Or, you know, I'd say, oh, bobcat on the right, where, you know, well, it's right here. Oh, I didn't see that. So it's really nice instead of just a cameraman, uh, you know, having somebody that's a hunter first and cameraman second, I guess I would say. And, and that's why some of our production stuff isn't amazing. Um, you know, I, I was going with hunters that were running cameras. And that's what I was kind of wondering, because I could see that being a real challenge, having someone that's not familiar with hunting, trying to run a camera and you're trying to <laughs> having them blow sets for you and everything else. I have lost my mind in the past. <laughs> yes, sir. I've tried both ways and I definitely prefer a hunter that's a cameraman. <laughs> right. So what were some of the challenges of hunting different countries? For example, I mean, uh, like in terms of what you can use for you know, your equipment, like calling or your firearm or whatever, like say for Australia or Canada or Africa. Traveling with firearms is a pain in the butt. Um, so, you know, that's one of the issues, uh, you know, all kinds, you, you know, you got to fill out all kinds of forms and you got this and that. And it seems like a lot of times customs will hold you up um, because you're, you know, you know, you're trying to catch a, a connecting flight, your gun goes through and they've got to check it all out. And it's like, Oh my gosh, you know, you know, it, it's a, it can be a real hassle. You know, I, I had one not too long ago um, coming back from a trip and, it, and I saw where, what they were seeing, but in their x-ray, they flagged my gun because the magazine, the top of the magazine was metal and it had that little grooved out thing. So it looked like there was actually a bullet in the magazine. There wasn't, but in the x-ray, the way the plate was on the mag made it look like there was a bullet in the magazine. So, you know, more power to them. Those guys were trying to, you know, protect people, but, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, there's a giant inconvenience. You know, you know, I pull your gun off and, you know, we got to, we're opening up and you got to be here when we do this and this and this. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of challenges. Um, I really like to have my own firearm when I can. Uh, I have borrowed firearms in the past. Uh, but when I go, I would much rather, uh, predator hunting requires some pretty accurate shooting, you know, and, and, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day, I, I measured the chest on a, on a coyote and a big, you know, male dog. And I said, you know, you've got five and a half to six inches, you know what I mean? Of, of killing area on, you know, on a, you know, on a, on a coyote's chest, you know, from top to bottom. And I said, so you're talking, you've got, you know, two and a half to three inches of leeway. That's it. You miss by over two and a half inches high, you're gonna miss that coyote. You miss by two and a half inches low, you're gonna miss that coyote. So you're shooting a, an MOA gun at 300 yards. That's three inches of variable right there. Right. So right. you go, okay, it's gonna take some pretty <laughs> accurate shooting. You know what I mean? You got to know your. So you got to know your firearm. Got to know your ammunition. Got to know the scope. You know, and that's not counting. You know the excitement. You know what I mean? Maybe not. You know breaking that trigger in the perfect spot. Things like that. We all miss. So. I, I'm very leery to borrow firearms um, just because of that. You know, it's, it's, it's a hassle. I don't know the firearm. I'm not as familiar with it. I'm way more efficient with mine because I hold them all the time. I shoot them all the time. My cheek welds the same every time. Um, so, you know, great question. Um, so I, but I will usually go through the hoops and, and, you know, all the different, you know, 
you know, things that they make you go through to travel with a firearm, just because in most cases, I would rather have my own. So like in Australia, I know they have, don't they have some pretty strict regs on the guns over there? Were you still able to take your own gun over there for that hunt? Australia was one that I was not able to. Uh, so I ended up having to borrow, you know what I mean? A, uh, a scope in Australia. So great point. You know, I've taken my own stuff a lot of the other places, but yeah, Australia was one where I actually, uh, you know, it was way easier for me to go over there and, and borrow a firearm than it was to take my own. So yeah, hundred, hundred percent. Whereas Africa, I was just in Africa in July and, you know, I took my own firearm over there. So, you know, it depends on you know, where you're going, what you're doing, what country, you know what I mean? You know, to, to your example, um, and, and are they gun friendly? Are they not? And how many countries do you have to go through to get there? Right. You know, like I'm bringing a shotgun, um, and I'm, I'm hoping to see if we can call in Fox too. I'm, I'm still trying to get back on the guy with this, but you know, we're going to Greenland, but we got to go through Iceland. So it's like, okay, so now I got to have regulations and here and this, you know, it's a, sometimes it can be a hassle. What, what kind of gun did you end up having to use in Australia? Um, I ended up using, I want to say it was a 222, an older 222 with a loophole scope, an older loophole. And I think that's right. Okay. I think that's right. Okay. I'd, have, I'd have to watch, I'd have to watch the video to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. Because I have, I have borrowed some crazy stuff. I, you know, I was shooting a super old, you know, 257 Roberts one time in one place. And uh, one guy had a 303 British infield. that I was trying, you know, I was like, really, that's a firearm you're bringing me? Like, you know, you know, so you know, for wolves, you know, it just depends on where you're going, what you're doing. But yeah, I, I borrowed all kinds of crazy stuff, but I'm pretty sure. There's some countries too that have like caliber restrictions as well too. And I know like Africa, I think, especially if you're after big game over there, you have caliber restrictions, right? But do you have that for predators over there? You know what? Uh, you know, I always, I, I always check it or have somebody else check it. But like I shot, I'm trying to think of what I shot a civic cat. I shot a civic cat and a honey badger. And I'm pretty sure that was a 257 Roberts. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure it depends on the country and there's regulations on every, every single place. So, you know, I try and check them or, you know, if I'm going with somebody that lives there or knows, I have them pull out regulations and check, you know what I mean? And, you know, I like to try and meet with game wardens even in different States because there are not only in other countries, but even here, there are some bizarre game laws. So, and I'll give you an example. I told you about the mountain lion, mm-hmm. you know, so here in Colorado, I called in a mountain lion with electronic call. Had I been in another part of the same state, I could have killed that lion. But because of where I was in the state, I couldn't kill the lion. Now, same lion, just two different calls. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Now, I was in Alabama and I was doing a, uh, a show for Ford trucks and we were talking about um, Ford Outfitters, it was called. So we were uh, we were doing some neat hunts for, for those guys. But I said, I'd like to talk to a game warden, you know what I mean? We got there because, you know, at the time I hadn't really predator hunted Alabama, you know, except for coyotes at Jackie Bushman's place. I'd called in and shot some coyotes there, but I was like, is Bobcat season still on? You know, can I use an electronic call for this, that, that? And the game warden, super nice guy. He's like, yep, coyote season in, fox season is in, Bobcat season is in, you know, raccoon season is in. Fred, you can shoot pretty much any predator you call in. I said, great. I said, I, you know, can I use an electronic call? And he goes, yep, you sure can. I said, great. Nice to meet you. We talked for a minute. He turned to walk out the door and 
literally stopped and went, oh, if you call a bobcat, though, you can't use a bird sound. And I went, what? <laughs> That's a law really? in Alabama. Listen to this now, Kevin. If you call it a bobcat, at least this is the way, this is the way it was five years ago, I can use a chipmunk. I can use a choked out deer sound, an alligator, a wombat, a snuffleupagus. I can use any sound I want, but I can't use a bird sound to call it a bobcat in Alabama. That is crazy. Oh, buddy. I can't, I, I can tell you some stories. I tell you some stories and, you know, and I tell guys, you really got to watch those regulations because they're nuts. I mean, I was hunting with a guy, um, and this was in Georgia, actually. And he was a retired game warden, actually. Crazy story. And we were calling in coyotes. Having a blast. We're calling in coyotes. We're, you know, do-do-do-do, shooting coyotes. Great fox comes running in. Buddy makes an amazing shot. Boom. We get a phone call after we air the show. Can't shoot a great fox with a 223. And I'm like, what? He didn't even know that regulation. Had to be a rimfire. Oh, really? <laughs> but, you know, so there's, there's, you know, I, I, I try and, I try and educate people because there's so many, right. it's sad, but you know, like I said, in Alabama, who made that law? I don't know. I'd love to <laughs> right. talk to him in an alley, but you know, it's like, really, you really thought that that was, you know, so there's just some interesting game laws, you know, like I said, you know, Colorado prime example, I could have, you know, we could have had a really neat time and a pretty awesome trophy with that lion standing right over my call at 15 yards, but I wasn't in the right part of the state to shoot that line that we called in. I would have had to use a mouth call. So it's interesting, you know, all the laws, like you said, firearm laws, caliber restrictions, um, you know, people really have to watch. Like I, I was promoting and talk about uh, talking about hunting coyotes over bait. There are certain states, certain areas, you can hunt coyotes over bait. Some you can't use, certain types of bait. You know what I mean? Like if you shoot a goose, you, you know, even if you take all the edible meat off it, you can't use that goose as bait. You know, yeah. So it's crazy to me, but you can use this or you can use that. And, you know, it, it can be this and it can't be that. And then some states are like, oh, no, no, you can't use bait. You know what I mean? That's not okay. So, you know, it just depends on where you're at, you know, and, and I tell guys that please, please check the regulations. It's always best to talk to a game warden and if you can get an email, because they don't know the laws very well sometimes either. Yep. You know what I mean? And and no offense to them, the you know the regulation book even here in Colorado is you know it's a, yeah, yeah it's, it's ridiculous. So it's you know it's one of those cover your cover your butt. You know if somebody tells you yeah you can do that like you know thermal scopes or night vision scopes. You know I I had people turn me in you know when I first started using thermal scopes. Oh you can't do that. It's illegal. I'm like no. It's legal on private land. It's not legal on public land. I was on private land. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different regulations, you know, everywhere. So, you know, like Michigan, for example, you know, you're talking about calling in a bear. They may allow electronic calls. They may not, you know what I mean? And, you know, so it's, it's one of those things that I always like to, as, as part of my, as part of my spiel for guys, I'm like, you know, Hey, make sure you check it. Cause sometimes you can be legal in one month. And not legal the next month. You know, in Colorado, if there's a big game season, you're not supposed to be out hunting coyote with something over, you know what I mean, 24 caliber, I think it is. So, you know, it's there's all kinds of crazy, 
you know, regulations state to state. And the best bet is always to, to talk to a game warden. Cause did that guy not, you know, in Alabama, had he not literally, as he was walking out the door gone, Oh, by the way, Oh, well, that's kind of a big deal. Cause <laughs> right. I use a bird sound all the time. Right. Interesting. Yeah. That's pretty wild. I mean, we have some unique ones here too. Like we can't hunt bobcats at night. Right now our bobcat season is in full swing. Um, and my area is broken up to different zones, for example. And the zone I'm in right now, it's closed. But if you go further north and east, it's still open. But is it a, a quota? Lot of people, huh? Is it a quota? Yes, we have a quota too. So wow. in Michigan, you're only allowed two bobcats. That's one in the lower peninsula and one in the upper peninsula. That's all you're allowed per year. And then, you know, a lot of people don't realize it, but it's not legal to hunt them at night in Michigan. You can only hunt them in the daytime. A lot of people say, well, I didn't see that. It says, well, if you go and look at the list of animals you can hunt at night, Bobcat is not on there. That's your answer. I'll be dang. See, there's, there's a good one, Kevin. And you just taught me something. And then it used to be here in Michigan um, when I first got into predator hunting, at night, you could only use rimfire or shotgun, which was a challenge. And if, I mean, I'm sure you know, too, rimfires don't always do the greatest job, especially on coyotes. Yeah. Um, so we actually worked with the DNR and all that and got it passed so that you can use a center fire at night. They put a limitation on it where you can't use any, anything bigger than a 0.269 diameter projectile. That's at night. During the daytime, you can use whatever the heck you want. <laughs> um michigan is broken up into two zones for deer hunting so they have the the top half of the state you can use whatever gun you want below that you can only use um shotgun or straight walled cartridges of a certain length for deer okay of a certain length too. yeah there's a length like you can't use a 4570 but you can use a 450 bushmaster as an example interesting but predator hunting you can use whatever gun you want during the day anywhere in the state now that doesn't make any sense exactly um you know they they, they talk they their um logic behind that is there's a whole lot more deer hunters in the field around the populated areas than there are predator hunters so they feel there's more danger with having a higher powered rifle in those areas because of the you know, population density and the amount of people that are in the field at any given time. Gotcha. So well, I hope there was some just thought that, that, were, that was put into it because some right. regulations I think are based in safety and, and actual thought and others I can't see the logic in to right. save my life. <laughs> so again, to your point, it's very important to, you know, talk to the DNR, talk to the people in charge and read the regs to make sure you're doing stuff right. So, um, Next question for you. I know you've been involved with several different companies, which are probably, you know, products you use or have used in the past. What's your experience like that been? Like, for example, Rock River Arms. I know you've been with Rock River Arms for a while now, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Great company. Great they are. Great people, you know, and that's, that's to me, uh, you know, a lot about it as well, but go ahead. Um, so, for example, with Rock River Arms, I mean, did you, you had input on designing a couple of firearms for them, right? I did. And that was so much fun. Um, those guys, you know, the brothers, the Larson brothers were, um, and unfortunately we lost one of the brothers, but those guys are so sharp um, and, and designed some amazing firearms. Their factory is also one of the cleanest factories I've ever been in. You could eat off the floor. It was amazing. So that impressed me um, when I went to tour the facility. Um, they also have forgotten more about firearms than I'll ever know. 
uh, you know, that those guys are just literally there, you know, they, you know, they, they were both, both gurus and everybody that works there, you know, or almost everybody I've met there, they're avid shooters, um, you know, avid hunters, um, and they take it real seriously. But one of the things that impressed me before I ever started working with them is a lot of, um, they had a lot of military contracts, law enforcement contracts, where guys that were, oh, I don't know, let's say operators, uh, you know, not just your beat guy, you know what I mean, carrying the sidearm that was, you know, given to them, but guys that lives were on the line and, and, and were able to choose their own firearm. They were coming in doing contracts with Rock River. And I'm like, wow, that tells me something, you know what I mean? You know, if, if my life depended on it, or if these guys' lives depend on it and they're choosing, you know what I mean, Rock River, well, that, that tells me it's a, it's a pretty dang good firearm. So I went to him and it was kind of funny. Me and some friends were messing around with reduced recoil and, and compensators and, you know, literally taking the blowback, you know, and, and you know, like a, like a port, it's almost like a combination port break um, because we were venting the gases to push the gun down and pull it forward. So natural recoil causes the gun to go backwards. You know what I mean? From the, you know, the, you know, the, the bullet being fired and the recoil of the, you know, the shell staying there as a, as the projectile goes forward. So the gun comes back and then the gun lifts up. We were trying to negate recoil by venting gases up, you know what I mean? To go ahead and push it down and forward, you know what I mean? To keep it, you know what I mean? Or back to keep it forward. So to kind of negate it. And so when I talked to those guys about it, literally one of the comments was, you can't handle the recoil from a 223. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm 6'2, I'm 210 pounds. I can handle the recoil from a 223. That is not a problem. Uh, but for faster target acquisition, faster second shots, I shoot a lot of coyotes on the run. Um, matter of fact, I just posted one up just from last week. I missed a sitting, I'm going to get off track here, but I got to tell you this story because it was so embarrassing. I missed a sitting coyote. I mean, at 130 yards. It was a sitting dog. He was right there. And, and the other coyote, I had two coyotes at the bait. One was further out. One was there. And you could see the closer coyote start to sniff the air. And the wind was kind of starting to drift. And I'm like, oh, man, he's getting my wind. I'm going to go over, switch from the closer dog to the farther dog. It was maybe 150. So I go out to the sitting dog real quick. I get on him. And I know I've got him. But I kind of rushed it. You know, I'm like, I got him. And I, I, last second, like I looked at the video because I was recording through the Thor and last second, I pulled it just a scotch and shot right through his hair high, and he took off. But I was able to swing on him, follow up, and the second shot at about 170 running full out, I took his lungs out and flipped and got him. So it was really cool, but it was just one of those, I could have never made that shot with a bolt, with a single shot, with a lever, with anything else. So, you know, so the, the AR to me is, is the perfect firearm, but going back to what I wanted with Rock River, we came up with a unique brake port that did that. It negated recoil. And that's what I wanted for quicker target acquisition, you know, multiple shots. And, and that heavier weight on the end acted almost like a suppressor or, you know, it, it helped reduce recoil, helped keep you on target. There was just so many advantages to it. So we rolled that out. One of the other unique things we did is I said, there's so many ARs on a shelf. You know, you know, a guy walks in and he's a little intimidated, you know, is that, is that one for what purpose? You know what I mean? Am I looking for a short bill home defense AR or, you know, this big heavy AR or, you know, this AR, what caliber is it? You know what I mean? Is it, you know, 458, you know, what, what is it? So 
I wanted, we decided to make it unique and we put coyote tracks on that, uh, on the handguard mm -hmm. that went nuts because guys could look at it instantly. No way. Do you have one? Oh, I thought you were going back there. I was like, sweet. So one, one of the neat things about that was guys could look at it in the gun rack and go, even the sales guys, you know, to be, you didn't have to be a rocket scientist to go, you know, scientist to go, that's your predator AR yep. right there. So it, it went so well for us. We, we went through multiple, you know, snow camo, different length barrels, you know, all, all kinds of different. Uh, I wanted the match trigger. That was another thing I wanted. I wanted the oversized, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, trigger guard, which they did, you know what I mean? On, on a lot of the ARs, but that was important to me, you know, cause a lot of times you're out in the winter, you got big bulky gloves on, uh, you know, I, I wanted picking rails all the way around. You know, I wanted to be able to put on lights if I wanted thermal scopes, you know, thermal stuff if I wanted, you know, any kind of other, you know, you know, coyote lights, whatever I wanted to do attached to it. Because a lot of times I'm looking for places like, oh man, I wish I could put another light over here. I wish I could put an IR light to help this night vision. And if I put two IR lights, it's twice as bright and I'll see even further. So, you know, you know, we wanted a one and eight twist. We, you know, there was a lot of, of things when you look at that predator rifle that we went, man, we have designed the the perfect predator rifle and, and you know in our eyes, you know, because it had a match trigger. A lot of them are set up and they may be cool, they may be super light, they may be this and that, but if the trigger's junk, you don't really have anything. So so we went with the match trigger and it's two-stage trigger, um, but you can get a single stage too for the guys that like that. Uh, but yeah, it was really a fun, it was a fun project and it's still an awesome project and we as we come up with different variations of you know what i mean you know you know the carbon carbon hand guards and you know go with different weights and you know different length barrels and you know all you know the different stocks you know from the operator to the fixed position you know you know the six position stock to the fixed stock so we've changed and tweaked a lot of things along the way as people say i'd really like to see this or man i'd like to see that and you know i've taken it so far as i've worked with wyoming arms on a suppressor a hunting suppressor a lot of the suppressors on the market in my eyes were way too big, way too big. And I wanted something to take the noise off, but I didn't want to carry a lot of weight when I'm traveling and, you know, hiking long distances. So, you know, those guys, again, you know, they knew a lot more about suppressors than I did, but, you know, we wanted a, you know, a hunting suppressor. And we were like, you know what, this is the perfect hunting suppressor because it's only four ounces. You know, we've got a four ounce and a five ounce suppressor. Uh, we got a titanium version that is just awesome and it'll knock 20 decibels. You know what I mean? Off an AR. And that's huge. You know what I mean? Cause I think it's times 10 on a, you know what I mean? Uh, times 10 or times hundred. My math's not yeah, good. Yeah. Uh, increments. When you're, yeah. When, when you're dropping 20, 20 decibels off, it's helping save your ears. It's comfortable. It's reducing the sound out there that predators are hearing. So for multiple dogs in one location, you know, I could shoot one, wait, call in another dog, shoot it. You know, I'm not shooting once and going, well, you know, probably time to leave this area and go set up again. So I've kind of taken that to the extreme where, you know, I've got my setup exactly the way I want it. And, you know, I've got, you know, different toys now, you know, one set up dedicated for thermal, one set up dedicated for night vision, you know, one's set up dedicated for daytime hunting. So, you know, now I've got different tweaks, but, uh, you know, it, it's a long, long ways from when I can only afford a little single shot, you know, H&R 223 <laughs> with break open barrel, yeah. but uh, there's some amazing toys out there now. So two, two questions. First one, you were just 
point you just uh, talked about, but do you feel, and we get this question a lot, and I see it on social media a lot, do you feel that hunting with a suppressor makes a difference in how the animals react that you're hunting? 100%. 100%. Not, not even a maybe. Yeah, it's a, a, a night and day. Night and day. Yeah. I, I agree. That's been my experience as well. But we get that question a lot, so it's nice to hear it from someone else too. No, no, no problem. Yeah, I, it, 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 it really, you know, the, the main thing is the hearing safety aspect. Right. You know, you know, don't get me wrong. You know, having to wear my dad, for example, he was a green bray when he was younger. He's an avid shooter. He still shoots trap and skeet. And we were out duck hunting the other day. But my dad can't hear. <laughs> you know, my, my dad's deaf you know, from too much exposure to gunfire. That's what it is. You know what I mean? Granted a little bit of it, he's getting up there, but it's, it's too much exposure to, to super loud noises. Um, OSHA uh, considers, I think it's 140 decibels safe in a work environment, exposure to 140 decibels one time in a day. Now, if OSHA considers 140 decibels safe, I think you could probably safely guess that it's that that they're erring on the on the high side but that's basically saying that an employee doesn't have a claim for for hearing damage if you only expose them to 140 decibels during the course of a day and i i think that's i think that's spot on but you know to me you, you listen to how far you can hear a gunshot you know and then you suppress it and you go wow night and day especially if you're downrange you know if you get where a coyote's at standing at 100 yards or even 200 yards and you go wow not only do i have a high you know a a more difficult time figuring out where that shot came from but the sound is so reduced that a it helped protect my ears um it gives me an advantage uh for another predator that may come in but it's also not as you know the original reason a suppressor was invented was so guys could shoot close to town Mm-hmm. And the guy that invented the suppressor literally designed it so he could shoot in town, you know, to be right on the edge of town and not offend his neighbors. And in a lot of countries, it's considered rude right. to not shoot with a suppressor. Yep. So movies have really, TV and movies have really messed up um, the idea of what a suppressor is because you don't silence it. And that's, you know, they were called silencers for so long and and now the you know, the, the more accurate term is a suppressor. You know, you find guys get mad when they say silencer, <laughs> right? Because yeah. it's not accurate. You know, yeah. that's how it was originally patented, but it doesn't silence it. It suppresses the gun noise. You can still hear it, right. you know, and then we could get into the, you know, subsonic versus, you know, supersonic, you know, at a thousand feet per second, give or take a little bit, you know, based on barometric pressure and humidity and all that. But yes, I, you know, again, a long-winded answer to your question I think a suppressor gives you a huge advantage in, in a lot of areas. First and foremost, it's it's hearing protection. Um, second, it would be, you know, you're not offending people. Um, and it makes other people's experience better. You know, you may have a guy kayaking or fly fishing in the mountains, you know, half a mile from you. And if he doesn't hear gunfire, well, great. It, it, it improves his experience, you know, outdoors. And he has just as much right to be there as you do. So if I can make their experience better, I want to do that. You know, the third part of that to me is, I think it does give you an advantage, you know, you know, hunting predators for sure, whether it's a follow-up shot or whether it's another predator coming in. Yep. I, I agree completely on all points. Do you have any other companies that you're currently working with that like you've gotten as in-depth as you have with like Rock River Arms? 
Um, you know what? I, what's fun is I've had, you know, I've got to go to Hornady when they were testing out the VMAX and, you know, to be coming up with some really cool stuff for that. Western Rivers, um, you know, getting a chance to design my own call uh, was awesome. You know, there's some great calls, you know, on the market. Fox Pro revolutionized, you know what I mean, e-calls. And there's super guys over there. You know what I mean? I've, you know, I've hunted with those guys. Um, super guys called in bears with them, called in foxes with them and, and, and had a blast. Um, and there's so many calls on the market now. But it was really fun to go, I want a 50% reduction button because one of my problems with some of the calls on the market is I would want to reduce the volume quickly. And almost all of them, I had to grab, you know, I had to grab it and then hit the volume button and start going lower. Dun, 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 and I'd have to hit it five or six times. It's more movement. So I think one of the most, one of the biggest advantages I had with the Western Rivers call that, that I helped design was you hit the button one time, it's a 50% reduction in volume on the call. So if you have an educated coyote or one that's coming in and you want them to come in close or one that's hanging up, man, I can make that call instantly because realistically an animal that's dying doesn't keep the volume at the level that it does, you know what I mean? For, for that extended amount of time. And no matter how good your speaker is, I don't care what call you're using it when a coyote starts closing real close, especially one that's been called in before uh, they're getting educated and older dogs are, are starting to tell the difference. Like, Oh, it sounded like a rabbit from three quarters of a mile away. But now that I'm a hundred yards, it doesn't sound so much like a rabbit anymore. You know, you get a little speaker distortion, noise distortion. It doesn't sound right anymore. So being able to reduce that volume 50% by just a touch of a button and hit it again, it reduces another 50%, I think was one of the best features I put into that call. Besides the fact that, you know, we custom recorded a lot of the sounds. So animals that were used to hearing sounds on other calls, you know, all of a sudden we're throwing calls at them that they had never heard before. So I was like, Ooh, awesome. Right. Very cool. I haven't actually ran one of those calls or been around them yet, surprisingly, because I know they've been around for a long time. I've been around almost all the other calls out there, but I don't think I've been around one of those yet. So I'll have okay. to try and make it a point to see if I Give can find one and check it out. Give it a whirl. Let me know what you think. Cabela's and Bass Pro sells them. I think you can get them all online there. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, there's a bunch of other places that, that get them. But if you punch in Western Rivers, you'll, you know, you'll probably find that. Find that. And, cool. you know, of course, like anything, I like the double speaker. Um, you know, I tend to look at it like, man, if I spend a little bit extra money, I'm going to get better volume. You know what I mean? Or, you know, uh, you know, or clear volume. I'm going to have two speakers that I can, you know, point the direction I, I want them to, you know, point. Um, I, I think, especially because I sell a lot of furs that if I call in two or three extra dogs or five or 10 or, you know, extra dogs, because I had a little better speaker quality, then it's worth it. You know, there's, there's some junk out there and it's really turned some guys off from predator hunting. I get emails or stuff on my social media pages all the time where guys are like, Oh, you know, man, I've been out there calling. I got this $69 call. And, you know, cows <laughs> just aren't coming in. I'm like, man, that sounds like a tire. You know, it sounds like, a, it sounds like you got a rock and a wheel. That doesn't sound like a predator, you know, and, you know, and if you do turn it up, it sounds horrible, you know? So, you know, just like anything, people have a bad experience, you know, a cheap rifle, a cheap scope, you know, we've all had, you know, who hasn't had a beater car that broke up, you know, broke down every two weeks, you know, you can have a good experience or a bad experience, but you know, the old adage, you get what you pay for is, is, uh, you know, pretty, pretty darn true. So I tell guys, no matter what call you're going to get, no matter what company you go with, you know, if you're going to pick it up, you know, maybe start with a mouth call that's cheaper, get it, you know, you know, learn a little bit about that, you know, cut your teeth on that. But if you decide you love it, 
you know, spend a little bit extra money, no matter what call company you're going to go with and get a little better call because you will never regret it. You'll call in, you'll call in more predators and most of the more expensive calls have a larger variety of sounds. Mm -hmm. The other thing I did not to brag up my call too much, but you know, there was, you know, a lot of guys would ask me, what call should I play? What call should I play? If I want to call in a Bobcat, what call should I play? If I want to call in a wolf, what call should I play for a badger? So I literally set it up like a menu and went, these are some of my favorite calls for foxes, my favorite calls for coyotes, my favorite calls for badgers, my favorite call for this. So, you know, raccoons. So, you know, I tried to throw it out there and go, here's some of, here's some of my favorite calls for this animal. So if you don't know anything and you've gone out, you're going out there for the first time and you have no idea what you're doing, you know, put the volume on half what you think it is. If you can barely hear it from 50 yards away, a coyote's going to hear that rascal half a mile away. So don't turn that volume up so much. Keep it lower and, you know, go with a, a, a better sound and you're going to have a lot more fun and you're going to call in a lot more predators. Tell us a little bit about your guide service. You so still- about 30 years ago, I started an outfitting business um, just so I could spend more time in the field. And because I had a lot of people asking me to take them hunting. Uh, so, you know, started out, my, my idea was just archery. That was one of my favorite things, you know what I mean? So I, was, I, I named it Full Draw Outfitters with two good buddies of mine, Blind Don, and we started Full Draw Outfitters. Um, but then we quickly realized that, man, you know, there's a lot of rifle guys that want to go. We're missing out a lot of the seasons, and it's dang hard to make a living. People think outfitters make a lot of money. Um, you know, maybe they're all doing it right, and I'm doing it wrong. You <laughs> don't make much. You know, the, the time you pay for fuel and good guides and, you know, equipment and scouting and, and leases and, you know, whether it's, you know, forest service leases or private land leases and things like that, you know, there's a lot of expense in an outfitting business and just, you know, feeding people. But, you know, we guide for a little bit of everything, you know, whitetail, mule deer, elk, bear, uh, turkey, you know, I can't remember if I said antelope, but a little bit of everything, um, you know, here in Colorado. And it's a blast. I, I absolutely love it. It's, you know, met some of my best friends through it. I've got guys that I got a guy coming out this spring turkey hunting that's going after his 25th turkey in a row with me. Hasn't missed a year in 24 years. And this will be his 25th, you know, and I think that guy's killed 19 elk with me. Oh. So really neat to uh, to take people out. A lot of guys will come out and say, well, you know, now that I shot an antelope, I want to shoot an elk or a mule deer or a whitetail or a bear. And, you know, it's it's been a lot of fun uh, doing it it's, it's just a, it's just a good time, you know, and, and all the boys have been involved with it. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's been one of those things. Um, you know, my wife's done a lot with it. Uh, there's just a lot of people that are involved in the, in the outfitting business. And then some great friends of ours have guided for years. You know, we got some great guys that come out and, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of fun. So if let's say you had someone, or let's say I had someone that was looking to go on a guided hunt, let's say with your outfit, what are, let's say, the top three things you would give them for advice on planning their trip? Good question. Uh, research. Um, research are you going with? That's huge. Um, you know, uh, outfitters like any other business. Um, there's good ones out there. There's bad ones out there. And there's great ones out there. Um, I won't tell you which category I fall in. But, <laughs> there's, you know, um, No, you know, and also, you know, even if somebody is 90%, and I'll give you a prime example. I had a a rifle season this year, uh, and and we went nine out of 10 on elk. And I was 
you know, I felt terrible for the guy that didn't, didn't get one. And, you know, some of our hunts are 50% depends on what hunt it is, what time of year, what the weather is, the moon phase and all kinds of things. But you were 0% to that person that didn't get one. So, you know, saying you're 90% is awesome, but the one person that didn't get one, you're 0% with them. So, you know, make sure it's somebody that cares, uh, make sure you, uh, you know, talk to them a lot, you know, have a good understanding of, of what you're after. You know, I've been on hunts that I was very disappointed in because I went, you know, Hey, you know, what is, what's the lodging or, you know, can I stay later? You know, one of the questions I say is, Hey, what if I pay my money to get there and tags and, you know, pay you and, 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 you know, all this stuff, is there an option for me to stay another day or two? Even if I have to pay a little more, that's a lot cheaper than me having to come back and do this hunt again. If I want to try and harvest the animal I'm after, mm-hmm. um, if you're a bow hunter, super important to ask if they're experienced with bow hunters. Have you guys guided many bow hunters or not? Same thing with a muzzleloader. You know what I mean? It's a, you know, a rifle guide may be a great rifle guide, but he may make a terrible archery guide, you know, or a bow hunting guide. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a big difference between getting a guy 300 yards and getting a guy 20 or 30 yards. Right. So, you know, I, I, you know, communication like anything is key. So there's no misunderstanding. Make sure you have a contract that lists all that. You know, I'll even, I'll do the same. If I go on a guided hunt, and the guy says, yeah, you know, you can stay an extra two days and I'm going to charge you whatever it is, you know what I mean? A day extra. I want to make sure he puts that in the contract. You know what I mean? Like, okay, great. Let's have a contract like anything else and list the price you told me. And are there any other charges that I'm not aware of? You know what I mean? Like, you know, I had, I had one guy charge me a bunch of extra money to get my animal out of the field. And I'm like, what? You know? Well, that wasn't on the, oh, well, we're going to have to bring in horses and that's going to be an extra cost. And, I, you know, you know, we got an argument over it because I'm like, wait a minute, that, that wasn't, you know, that should be included to me. So, you know, again, to try and avoid misunderstandings, ask percentages. If, you know, if the experience is what you're about, because in a free range hunt, you're not paying for an animal. Uh, you're, you're hopefully paying for an opportunity to that animal. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to go with outfitters uh, that do what I do, which is, guys can go on my website at folder outfitters and, and see exactly what, what we do every week. We post every week, how many people are in clamp, how many people get shots, how many harvest animals and how many don't get shots, but that can work for you or against you. Like I may go, Hey, we had a 20%, you know, harvest rate this season, but eight out of 10 guys had shots, you know what I mean? So, you know, if you got guys that can't shoot or get excited, you know, archery, good gosh, you know, guys get excited. You know, we had guys five yards. We had a, you know, we, we had a miss at 10 yards, a miss at 30 yards. So, you know, as an outputter, it's like, okay, we did our job. You know, you had a shot at a, at a bullet, you know what I mean? You know, 10 yards that probably should have been a harvested bull, but it impacts our, you know what I mean? Our percentage. So, you know, I also like asking people questions. Every outputter has that prepared list of, you know, cousins or best friends that are going to say, he's the best outfitter in the world. If I'm from Michigan, for example, Kevin, I'm going to say, hey, have you ever got any guys from Michigan? Give me give me a couple of guys in my area or let me get a number from some of the guys that didn't harvest an animal. Because if I get a good recommendation from a guy that went with, a, with a, on an outfitted hunt and he didn't harvest an animal and I call him and say, hey, man, I got your number from the outfitter. What do you think? And he may go, man, my scope got knocked off and I missed three. You know, and I go, oh, wow. Did you have a good hunt? You know, were they nice? Were they friendly? You know what I mean? Did you feel like they had a good area? Did you feel like they worked for you? That's my thing. I, I don't ever go anywhere and go, man, I'm for sure going to get an animal. I just want the guys to have a, 
good area. So I feel like I have an opportunity. Um, a lot of times I'll ask how much property do you have to hunt? How many people are going to be in camp? How many guides, what's the guide to hunter ratio. And, you know, you know, talk to me about, you know, how we're going to do the hunt. You know what I mean? What's, well, you know, what's, what's, what's a day like, you know, and do I have the option to hunt all day? You know, I've been with places where they're like, all right, let's go in and eat lunch. And I'm like, uh, can we stay out in the field? I, I mean, I know I only have a 10% chance of killing one between 10 and two, but can you drop me off on a water hole? Can you drop me off in the edge of a field? You know, I want to stay out in the field or I may want to take a break. You know, I, you know, I just want to be able to have that option. And sometimes if you're hunting with two guys or three guys, one guy says, I want to go back to camp. One guy says, I want to stay out in the field. You know, one guy says, I want to go over this ridge and the poor guy's going, ah, <laughs> what do we do? So, you know, again, communication, that's the big thing, you know, you know, and, and talking to people and, and looking at the animals that they have harvested. Um, you know, when going with somebody that I guess you feel like if you're going to spend your hard earned money with them, are they going to give you that amount worth of a good time? Mm -hmm. Great. Good info. Um, now we'll go into a little bit more technical stuff to finish this up. Uh, going back to predators, do you have, if you were, could pick the conditions that you would say are best for, let's say, coyotes, what would you say those conditions are? I mean, do you follow barometric pressure, moon phase, all that? Does that make a difference to you as to what you would consider prime time to go out? Um, I think all those are variables, but I think you have a whole bunch of tiny things that add up to a hundred percent. And I say that because, you know, moon phase may make a 10% variable, you know what I mean? You know, being able to shoot accurate may make a 10% variable, you know, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? You know, yeah. you know, uh, you know, is it cold? Is it hot? Is it super windy? So to me, a perfect condition, that's a good question. I've never even asked that Kevin, but to me, if I was thinking about a perfect condition for a coyote specifically, I would say I want overcast, um, you know what I mean? I want an overcast, cold morning. Uh, morning to me is 80-20. Almost every, you know, coyote hunter I know says the same. Now, night turns on again, but I shoot way more coyotes early than I do, you know what I mean, in the, in the evening. Have you found that? Is it the same for you? or well, Here in Michigan, um, prior to getting into nighttime hunting, we were averaging seeing a coyote maybe once every 20 stands. Once night hunting we really got into it that upped a lot now that oh yeah that, that being said i still am successful during the day but to be honest with you most of my daytime success is in the evenings but that's probably because that's when i'm usually most able to go I'm oh not, i got you okay I'm a, I'm a first shifter at work so okay. usually mornings is harder for me to get out so like usually that last hour to hour and a half of daylight is what i would consider my prime time and daytime Gotcha. Okay. So for, for me in the majority of places I've been, and a lot of the guys that I've talked to, it seems like morning, uh, because you got a coyote that's ready to go to bed. You know what I mean? He's going to lay up for the day. And if he didn't kill anything that night, if he's hungry, you know, he wants to eat before he goes legs up in yeah. the evenings. You know what I mean? That, that's just for me. So, so I would say it's a cold, you know, morning with a five to 10 degree wind. So I have a, you know, a, you know, a constant wind, but not enough to, uh, not send the call out there enough, but just to have a steady wind direction. So yeah, cold. I like, uh, I like if it's a, you know, early morning, um, overcast cold, that's going to be my biggest, my biggest factors. Have you ever paid attention to the barometric pressure? Do you find more success with a particular barometric pressure? 
I have, and it seems like a climbing or falling, you know what I mean? It, you know, it seems like I have a lot more, a lot more success when it's, when it's moving, you know what I mean? That's that the storm's coming in, it's going out. Uh, I seem to have a little bit more success, you know, when I've got a climbing or falling one, you know, it's it just, to me, it seems like I get more animals out. Same thing with deer, you know, you, you know, you can watch a lot of things that go, Ooh, everything's moving today. Right. Um, you know, same thing. If I got cattle that are fed, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, always cows, you know, the cows up, are they feeding? Are they laying down? Like, Ooh, this is coming in and we don't want to be up feeding. So, you know, I'll watch a lot of other animals as well to see what they're doing. Um, you know, that changes if I'm hunting a bobcat, I'd like a little snow, you know what I mean? Not a hard snow, but you know, I want a little bit of snow cause they're, they're out hunting, you know, lions and bobcats tend to hunt a lot when it's snowing, raining a little bit. Um, cause it's easier for them to slip up on critters, but yeah, for coyotes cold, uh, before they start breeding. So, you know, probably December, you know, maybe even January, um, you know, cause they, they need their calorie intake, uh, has to increase. They need more calories just like we do when it's colder. So they're more apt to come into a call. Um, so if I was to pick my favorite, that'd be it. Now, when you go out to do a calling set for coyotes, for example, how do you like the wind direction? Do you prefer a crosswind, wind in your face? It, it depends on where I think the coyotes are coming from, okay. uh, Kevin. So there's a lot of variables there. Um, you know, if, depending on where I think the coyote's going to come from, I may want a wind going a totally different direction and, and straight, straight at me. And, you know, and am I you know, when I can use a natural obstacle to keep a coyote from circling or coming in downwind, I'm going to do that, whether that's a river, a road, a highway, a mountain, um, you know, super open terrain, you know, things like that. You know, if I can set up and go, all right, I'm going to call here because I know this coyote's going to be in this brush or in this river bottom or over here. And I want to put it in front of me for a good shot uh, where I've got everything in my advantage. You know, I want the sun at my back when I can get it. When I've made mistakes, it's usually been because I picked a spot because I was getting impatient. Mm. Um, I'm way better when I, especially in a new area, if I cruise around and go, okay, that's the spot. When it feels right, you know what I mean? Usually when I'm trying to push wind, you know, or push, you know what I mean? The sun being on my face or get, get some glint off, you know, off my scope or where I can't get into the shade or get a little bit of cover, um, things like that you know, it's usually when things go south on me. So, you know, I'm looking for all that stuff, you know, the wind, again, depending on the terrain and the natural obstacles, you know, you know, I can even have, I've even set up with the wind blowing straight at my back because I had the call off to the left, but I thought the call, you know, I thought the animals were either going to approach from the left or from the right. And I just knew I had to shoot them before they cut that or before they cut my track walking in, mm -hmm. you know, or walking out to set the call. A lot of people don't let, take that into consideration. You know, i I'm looking, where did I walk? Where's that coyote going to pick up my scent? Because if you watch a coyote pick up your scent, I don't care what you're wearing. You know what I mean? If you run hounds, I've run hounds on everything, you know, raccoons and bobcat and lions, and you can be wearing rubber boots, but your scent's coming off you and they'll hit where you walked. I guarantee you've had it happen too, probably. Oh, yeah. And they'll, they'll swap ends and are gone. And so a lot of times with newer coyote hunters, I'll say, man, just as important as where your wind direction is, is where you walk to place that call. You have got to shoot that coyote if you want a good shot before it gets to that spot too. So, you know, if I put the call at a hundred yards, I got a hundred yards of walking out and walking back. And I walk the same trail. I've seen guys go out and set the call out and then they'll walk 20 or 30 yards away from that and circle. And I'm like, what are you doing? Cause now you've got two scent trails out there. Yeah. Like I'm very anal about things like that. Like if I walk out and set up a call, I'm going to walk back on my same track back so I just have one line 
you know, going to that, to that call and back. And I'll know exactly where that is because I'll look at that as an imaginary line. So yeah, there's so many little tiny, like I said, there's a lot of those little variables that I, you know, that I'm always looking at. Where's the, where's the sun when I set up, I may set up before light. Well, where's that sun going to be 20 minutes into my stand, you know, or where's the sun now, if it's already up and where's it going to be 20 minutes from now, you know, is it going to be in my face? Is it going to be coming through the side of this tree, lighting me up like a Christmas tree? You know, what do I have to, you know, what's the best spot, not only for right now, but maybe 20 or 30 minutes from now, depending on where I'm calling, what I'm set up for. Very good. Yeah. I, that's one thing that, you know, you see that question a lot. We get it to our page a lot is, you know, how do you set up for it? And a lot of times I say almost the exact same thing you said. I mean, your terrain's going to dictate that, the wind, everything's going to play into it. So it's not a, necessarily always an easy answer. Right. No, exactly. exactly. Do you um, do much locating? Uh, yes, it, depending on the time of year. So yeah, once they're paired up, you know, like I've got some ranches that'll call me out when they have, you know, problem coyotes. Because once, not all coyotes are calf killers, um, at least not in our country. There's a lot of them that'll never mess with a calf. But when you get a pair or, you know, a group of them that have learned to take down calves or especially bad mothers when they'll leave, especially out here when guys will go and feed like, you know, me or my son will go out and drop a hay bale and you have a bad mother that'll leave a newborn calf and maybe walk 300 yards or half a mile, you know, to go get some hay and leave that calf right there. Well, you get a, some coyotes that learn that they'll go out there and friggin', you know, kill that calf. Well, once they learn that, that's a lot easier for them you know, than killing some of the wild games sometimes. Sure. So yeah, that, that's really important to me, especially when they're starting to pair up in the spring, when guys are starting to drop calves, I've, I've gone out at night, located, GPS it, you know, where it is so I can come back and make multiple sets at night, you know, close to where they're denning up, you know, close to where I've got, you know, coyotes at. So yeah, I'll do some locating, uh, you know, a lot of times during that time of year, even more so than others, because the rest of the year coyotes move so much, mm -hmm. uh, like the scenario I gave you with wolves, you know, where they went over eight miles. Um, you know, I've had people go, oh, man, I got coyotes right here. You go there and they're like, you know, they're three miles away. They can't hear the call. They've traveled. Yeah. So, you know, you may have coyotes there one day or may have them there one day a week. And, the, you know, the farmer, or, you know, or somebody hears them and says, oh, man, I got coyotes everywhere. And, you know, you go there and, you know, well, those coyotes are, you know, they're three, four miles away, man. They're not there. So the I think locating, like, well, how come you didn't kill them? I heard 30 of them. Oh yeah. They're looking at you like, yeah, I don't understand. You're like, well, yeah, maybe there's a deer down, you know what I mean? A mile away and they're feasting on that. Right. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, there, there, there's, there's a lot to the, to the locating. Um, I like locating sometimes, you know, even in the mornings, if I'm thinking about setting up and like, you know, I'll, I'll run a siren, I'll run a coyote locator how, and I'll go, Oh, Okay, let's they're far enough away that there's no reason in setting up here. Let's go a mile or let's hike further, get up on the ridge and get closer to those guys before we call. So yeah, I will I will locate depending on the time of year and uh, depending on where I'm hunting. The next question, I think I know the answer because you kind of covered some of it already, but we'll put it out there in plain English for everybody. Do you change your calling sequence throughout the year? Yes, very much so. Um, and again, depending on like you said, we kind of touched base on it. But, you know, if scouts are starting to pair off, you know what I mean? I may use challenge howls, locator howls. I'll do a lot more coyote vocalizations um, again. And that's to spark either the sex, you know what I mean? The the curiosity or the aggression, you know what I mean? Which to me, again, goes falls kind of under that curiosity, but, you know, or aggression and protecting their area. So, yes, uh, whereas in the winter, 
um, you know, I tend to go with a lot more food calls. Again, you know, they're, they're trying to keep, increase that, you know, caloric intake. Uh, sometimes uh, coyote vocalizations can work against you too, though, with younger dogs. Uh, you know, I've had, you know, older mature dogs come in a lot. Uh, but sometimes you use a vocalization, you know, on a younger dog, it doesn't want any part of it, man. Like, oh, but I got beat up yesterday. You know what I mean? I'm trying to get the heck out of all these pairs over here that are beating me up. So, you know, I've got some neat video of coyotes getting attacked, you know, by cruising into the wrong area or coming up on a pair where they're, they are not nice. You know what I mean? They'll get in there, bite them. You know, we probably all skin coyotes that, you know, had big bite marks or, you know what I mean? Cuts on them. So very much so, you know, the puppy in distress is one that I'll, you know, I'll use that almost all year. That's a great one. Um, Cause almost every coyote has killed a dog. You know what I mean? They've eaten dogs, they've eaten puppies, you know, dogs that were hit on the road and all kinds of stuff. So puppy in distress is a great call to use to me. Um, I'll run that all year, but I'll go with a lot more vocalizations um, in, you know, early winter, you know, February, March, depending on what area you're at, you know, regionally and when they're starting to pair up. Okay. And one more, here's a scenario that we've been seeing people ask about a lot in the past month, roughly, is you're out calling, you get them to vocalize, and let's say you get them to vocalize two, 300 yards away in a wood line, but you cannot get them for whatever you try to break that cover. What would be your tactic in that situation? Well, you know, a lot of it depends on why they're not breaking cover. Are they educated coyotes? Is it a pair? You know what I mean? Maybe they don't want to leave their partner. You know what I mean? You might have a female in a den, uh, you know, in other words, it's like, so there's a lot of different, you know, again, like you said, every scenario is a little bit different. Uh, maybe a coyote that's been shot at before and has some like, eh, I'm going to bark back at that, or I'm going to answer that, but uh, it, it doesn't sound right. So in that case, again, I'll move closer a lot of times and I'll totally change it. I'll try and give it 30 minutes an hour. Cause you know, they're like a lot of people they're forget, you know what I mean? Like, Oh, I heard something. It sounds suspicious over there, but oh, I hear a little woodpecker dying over here, and it's a lot closer. I don't have to go that far. Maybe I'm laid up for the day where I'm going to answer, but I'm not really going to travel anywhere. So I will close the distance on them, watching wind direction, watching noise, you know what I mean, and all the other little factors, you know what I mean, that I can, because the biggest thing is I don't want to, I don't want to blow them out of there, you know, I don't want to walk in there and spook them, but. I'll start closing incrementally. You know what I mean? If they're 300 yards away, I may close a hundred yards. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, coyotes are so sharp. I had one the other day, prime example. And uh, that coyote, I'm trying to think, I think it was 135, 138 yards. It was a still night. I did not load my gun. I'm always anal about, you know, making sure I unload between sets. And I literally just forgot. I was tired of running all night. And I dropped, I literally dropped the sear on an empty chamber and the coyote heard it oh, yeah. at over a hundred yards and took off. I've and I'm like, <laughs> man, if they can hear, if they can hear that, that drop, that's your drop on, you know what I mean? They can hear that amber drop on a, uh, you know, on that, I break a stick at 200 yards or they hear me crunching through snow or, you know, stuff, they're going to be gone. So, you know, I, you know, I tell guys, it sounds great to try and sneak up on a coyote, but actually try doing it and see see how good you you are at it. It doesn't usually happen. So, a lot of time, I think the mistakes guys make is they'll hear that coyote in the trees, like you know, to your example, and they'll get too close, and they and then they'll think they failed. They'll get in there, they'll set up, they'll call, expecting the coyote to come in, not realizing they boogered the coyote and the other coyote that was with it, or whatever else was there. So, I I do those those moves. 
incrementally. And sometimes I may set up three times on them, you know what I mean? But my biggest thing is don't let them win you. Don't let them see you. Don't let them hear you, yep. you know? So I'll do that incrementally. Um, one last question then, just because it popped into my head talking about all this. What, did, what would you say is your average time for a set? Like how long do you spend at a particular spot? Would you say on average? Kevin, and again, and I know you know this as well, and, and I'm not beating around the bush for guys, but uh, what are the weather conditions? Is it raining? Is it snowing? Am I calling in Florida? Or am I calling in Texas? You know what I mean? Or Wyoming. And, and I say that because it, it varies so much. In Florida, where you've got a super thick canopy, that call's not going to carry as far. You know what I mean? I can, I can also make a shorter distance between sets because that call's not you know traveling as far because I've got trees and brush and leaves and pine needles and all kinds kinds of stuff that's stalling that sound out. So, you know, in that situation, I may, I may only call for 15, 20 minutes, but you know, like the distance, like the difference between hearing somebody talk across the lake and somebody that you can't hear talking in the woods at the same distance. If I'm out in Wyoming, you know, heck, I may sit there for 45 minutes, an hour. Um, so, you know, it really depends on how far that, you know, I'm calling it, you know, snow will dampen that sound noise down quite a bit. Um, a lot of fog will dampen that, you know, noise down. So a lot of it has to do with, you know, rain, snow, fog, uh, you know, how thick are the trees, you know, every area that I hunt, I, I change that up, a, you know, I change that up a little bit. So, but if I was to give you an average, I'd say an average is probably 25 to 30 minutes, just an overall rough average. Okay. Um, sometimes it depends on, Am I trying to get video in a certain area or am I just trying to kill dogs as quick as I can? You know what I mean? You know, and in that case, I may go, eh, I'm going to give up a dog or two, but I'm going to hit a whole bunch of country. And if a dog's close, I'm going to kill it quick and I'm going to move on to the next thing. So, you know, a lot of it depends on, you know, what's my goal? How much country can I hunt? Am I hunting one guy's private place or am I hunting a smaller plot? Well, that's, that's it. If that's the only gig I got in town, I'm going to, I'm going to sit there for 45 minutes an hour to hope that if a coyote doesn't hear me that within that 45 minutes an hour there's a coyote cruising and he and he gets into that you know sound cone and comes in great well thank you very much um if anyone wants to look up your um you know your tv show or what's the best place for someone to find your stuff nope no problem man i've got a fan page fred like the fan page on instagram um we've got a youtube channel that we show all kinds of stuff show guys how to skin almost anything so you know whether it's alligator black bear grizzly bear coyote bobcat you know how to how to skin them to sell them how to scale them for a you know how to skin them for a mount um but yeah so the, our youtube page instagram facebook we got twitter and then motv is playing a lot of the predator nation shows um as well as a brand new digital series i just did that's called uh, just shot with motv and that's brand new stuff. That's stuff that's been shot within four weeks. So literally we shoot it and we put it up. So if you see it, it's been shot within the last, sometimes it takes them a week or two to put up, but it's been shot within the last few weeks. So it's really new. It, it's kind of a neat idea. It's stuff that just happened. You're not looking at something that happened 10 years ago, right. whereas you can go into MOTV's digital library and go, hey man, I want to look up every Bob cat show that you guys have and you can look at you know hundreds of bobcats but you know some of them may be two years ten years whatever right all right very cool i won't hold up your time anymore really appreciate you joining us for this oh kevin it was great i enjoyed talking to you man good luck out there and i hope you end up calling in a bear in michigan if you do let me know i will do that thank you very all much right. And all right sir good luck you have a good evening thank you once again for joining us this week fred and to everyone listening please like and subscribe 
and join us again next week on the Overdrive Outdoors podcast.